It's Thursday, February 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As smartphones have become integral parts of many people's lives, you should always be aware of what is going on with your privacy and your personal data. And as we ramp up to another round of elections in two years, there is a new frontier in campaign tech, and data brokers are collecting your information for political campaigns to buy up. Evan Halper, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for how political campaigns are tracking us through our phones and TVs. Next, as social media amplifies the missteps by brands, it is forcing them to figure out a rapid response plan. Acknowledge, apologize, and investigate. Sarah Germano, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about crisis management for brands and how long your window of opportunity may be. Only 30 minutes in some cases. Finally, here comes the Space Force. The president has signed a directive to start the process for creating the Space Force within the Air Force. This is the first step in taking a rally slogan to a real national security entity aimed at protecting our interests in space from threats like China and Russia. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us to break it down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What campaigns have the technology to do now is find out where you've been throughout the day. When you use an app, often, uh, you know, it might be a weather app, it might be a game. Unbeknownst to you, most of the time, you are authorizing your location data to go to these faceless data brokers. And then they compile all that, and then the, the campaigns develop algorithms around that and target the ads back to you. Joining us now is Evan Helper, reporter for the LA Times covering the 2020 election. This is a super interesting topic. We talk about privacy all the time. A lot of times we're our own worst enemies. We give up our information very freely. And then a lot of times you're also thinking about, man, why am I getting targeted with these ads? Is my phone listening to me? Is it picking up something and then sending me targeted ads? And then you're also thinking a lot of times, why am I getting all of these different political ads? This kind of conversation is going to wrap all of that together because of all of our smartphones and all that stuff. Companies and political campaigns are actually tracking our movements, our whereabouts, and then funneling all of those ads, the specific targeted stuff, right to our phones, our TVs, our laptops, everything. Tell us a little bit about this, Evan. Yeah, it's amazing how much they're finding out about us. I mean, I think we all have known that there's targeted ads when you go on a website or, you know, they're looking at your search data on the internet and maybe some other things. What we've learned is that it it goes many levels beyond that. And what campaigns have the technology to do now is find out where you've been throughout the day. When you use an app, often, uh, you know, it might be a weather app, it might be a game. Unbeknownst to you, most of the time, you are authorizing your location data to go to these faceless data brokers, which actually can keep track of like where your phone is at any given time during the day and then they compile all that and then the the campaigns develop algorithms around that and target the ads back to you based on where you've been or what they assume your preferences are on where they where you've been and what'll sometimes happen or what'll often often happen now is a political campaign may decide at a rally or town hall event or you know maybe a city hall meeting that uh, an issue they're interested in came up they want to find all the people who are there and be able to target them and it's extraordinarily easy to do. They work with these data brokers. They can even go back six months and pick an event and a location and get the unique identifiers of the cell phones of all the people who were there and then use that information to target ads at them. And then also they can use that information to find their other devices and target ads at those like your laptop or desktop. 
In uh, your article, you call it an electric fence and campaigns, they're stationed at a, whatever it is, at a hotel or, you know, some type of uh, arena or whatever. So they can put kind of a little geo fence right around that. And then all the people that walk in there, they have that specific identifying information for your phone. And then they know, hey, these people fit my demographic. And as you said, we want to target an ad to them so they can vote for us or the issue. And they got you that way. Yeah, it was one of the things that surprised me how just nonchalant campaigns were about this when I was asking about these geofences. It was just kind of like, yes, of course we do that. This has been around for a while. This is something we do all the time. We fence you in. We find, like I was saying before, we, you know, if, if you were at a, a rally or a town hall or, or anything that's of interest to us, or we want to find all the people who visited a, could even be a gun range if they're looking for hunters. We can just fence in that area and for a period of time. And once again, even retroactively, we can, we can fence it in get the unique identifiers on the phones of all the people who are there. And then we use those unique identifiers to make sure that those people get targeted with our advertising campaign. And it's not only our phones that are betraying us, it's our TVs also, our smart TVs that we connect to the internet so we can get our apps like Amazon and and Netflix. Those ones are also giving away some of our data. Yeah, the development with smart TVs was really interesting in that we've known for some time that satellite television providers, for example, could target you down to the household. So if you wanted to get all the people under 35 who lived in a certain area and only them with a particular ad and not want to have to pay run an ad you know, to every subscriber on a program, you could do that, this targeting advertising. What's new, though, is now they're selling these smart TVs where they do all the things like you mentioned. You, know, you can do a lot of cool things with your smart TV. And when you set up your smart TV, you go through this privacy policy process. No one reads the fine print on it. You just are trying to get through it so you can get your cool apps going or whatever you want to do with your, your smart TV. And it turns out what these TVs do is they, they're actually tracking everything you're watching. If you're on a campaign and, and you saw that something happened on Rachel Maddow the other night that was good for your candidate or bad for your candidate, and you want to get a message to everyone who, who watched that the night before, you can do that now. Everyone who is using one of those TVs, they have no idea you're doing it in most cases. And what it, when they turn on the TV next, whatever it is they're watching, they don't have to be watching Rachel Maddow again. You find that group of people who is watching that thing and you can get your your ad to them. Anytime you give that consent is this there's this possibility that some data broker is collecting it and then from there selling it off to whoever. In this case we're talking about campaigns, but a lot of other companies do the same as well. Campaigns are not even on the forefront of this. They're picking up on what companies are doing, you know, what the retail industry is doing and they're they're appropriating it for their own purposes. This is stuff that's that's widespread in a lot of industries and some of the industries even surprise us when we find out about them. We wouldn't expect that they would care to be tracking us. The New York Times had a good get on how hedge funds were using this information for their purposes. Not not sort of a a sector we would have thought would have cared to track our our every moves, but they had use for the data. People do not realize when they open these apps that all this data is getting shared. When they use their location data, they start getting tracked. On the other hand, if you want to opt out of it, supposedly an option, but it's it's very hard to do the things people have come to expect their phones to do while also turning off all these location data capabilities, because once you do that, your phone doesn't work the way you want it to. Evan Halper, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. It was great to be on. Thank you for having me.
company comes out with a problematic product, people pick up on that very quickly. So now companies have to make very quick decisions. The rule of thumb, one communications expert told me is half an hour. If you think about half an hour, it's a TV show. Like how many of us can even arrange a phone call with a best friend within half an hour? Joining us now is Sarah Germano reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about how brands are acknowledging missteps and uh, handling controversies that come their way. There's nothing more important to a brand, to a big company than their image and their reputation. It can make or break them really. And the way social media has been an increasing form of communication that everybody uses, something small can be amplified and move very quickly. Or if you bide your time, maybe it goes away. So talk to us a little bit about how big brands combat online rage. They have a three-pronged approach of acknowledge, apologize, and investigate. Yeah, and it's something that seems to be happening with more and more frequency. And I spoke to several corporate executives and communications experts about what this modern day phenomenon is like. Not even 10 years ago, some of these experts say if there was a controversy of some sort or an advertisement that some found displeasing, it's possible that one outlet might write about it. Maybe it was a local outlet. The expectation is that it may not get picked up or spread widely. And journalists were really kind of the main conduit between companies and the public other than consumers buying products on their own. Now that we have social media, everything has gotten much more complicated and news spreads much more quickly. So in the cases where companies are creating missteps, I don't want to conflate it and suggest that, you know, it's the social media backlash that is causing the problem. If a company comes out with a problematic product, people pick up on that very quickly. So now companies have to make very quick decisions. The rule of thumb, one communications expert told me is half an hour That's and you have that fast. time to d- decide. Yeah. Yeah. Half an hour. If you think about half an hour, it's a TV show. Like how many of us can even arrange a phone call with best friend within half an hour? Right. And depending on how big a potential controversy could be, the early thinking was maybe nobody will pick it up. Let's wait a little bit to see how much heat this will get. You can almost tip the scales on yourself by responding to something too quickly. And a half an hour is such a short amount of time. You really have to be wary of the type of response you're going to give that quickly. Right. And I think that it's a rule of thumb, but the main message is that companies have to decide in a very short amount of time how serious the problem is, how widespread it is, how it may affect their bottom line, how it may have happened in the first place, because I can give you a few examples. Recently, I spoke with the brand new North American head of diversity and inclusion at H&M, and she got that job because a year ago, H&M had an infamous incident in which a sweatshirt they released, which was modeled by a black child, was widely panned for being racially insensitive. And so the company quickly took the product down. They apologized. They said they would investigate it. And I spoke with her to sort of follow up, you know, one year later, what have you learned? And she said, you know, obviously I have my job because of this incident. But beyond that, we realize most of our designers are based in Europe and Asia for the most part. And there was a blind spot for them and realizing that their products may be offending people in other parts of the world. So they try to do more quality control assessment of products before they go to market. They're talking to their colleagues in different parts of the world to review things before they're actually going into production. A lot of times these crises can really cause an uproar, but for a lot of these companies, it doesn't necessarily always turn into a lasting reputational damage. The news cycle right now is so fast and so quick, it could pop up, it could be a problem for a little bit, but 
people forget about it pretty soon. You bring up some good points. I mean, that was really the genesis for why we wanted to do this story, because there have been a number of recent incidents involving Gucci and Adidas and Reebok, and it really just forced the question of, like, how does this keep happening? Like you said, did nobody look over, over these products before they came to market? It seems like every day there's a new apology, and why is it happening? But the flip side of that is we analyzed some brands that have had these crises in the like medium term, like over the last few months to a year. And for the most part, there hasn't been lasting financial damages. One example is Mercedes-Benz last year on their Instagram page quoted the Dalai Lama, which sparked a lot of uproar and unrest in China because the Dalai Lama is seen as a separatist figure in mainland China. Mercedes had to issue a very swift and heartfelt apology to the Chinese people, analyzing their financial results thereafter. Car sales in China were actually up close to 20% for the immediate period following, and they've still been rising in China thereafter. Another example that many people are familiar with is Nike's Colin Kaepernick ad. It's a little bit right. different than a misstep because, you know, an advertisement is something that they put a lot of thought into and knew going into it that it was going to create a lot of division. And maybe more than any other advertisement in the last year or recent memory, it created it. It created its desired effect. Some people supported it, and other people said that they would never buy Nike products again. But lo and behold, for the first quarter after the Kaepernick advertisement came out, Nike sales were up 10%. Sarah Germano, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again. I'm thrilled to sign a new order, taking the next step to create the United States Space Force. America must be fully equipped to defend our vital interests. Our adversaries are training forces and developing technology to undermine our security in space. That's why my administration has recognized space as a warfighting domain and made the creation of the Space Force a national security priority. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. It seems that the Space Force is coming. It's one step closer to being a reality. The president just signed a directive stating that the uh, process for creating the U.S. Space Force, it's going to be within the Air Force. Now the Department of Defense has to draft some legislation so that it can get congressional approval. What do we know about the latest thing that uh, the president has signed about this? Well, we know uh, many more details about the vision for it. There had been some wrangling behind the scenes within the Pentagon about, between the Pentagon and Congress, about whether this would be a freestanding entity. So, you you'd have like the Army, the Air Force, the Space Force, Navy, you know, that sort of thing, or whether you'd house it within another branch. Initially, that's what the president wanted. He wanted to be like a separate but equal branch of the military. And that was kind of met with some skepticism by congressional lawmakers. What's basically going to happen is they're going to set this thing up within the Air Force, but have it be more like the Marine Corps eventually, so that uh, the Marine Corps is nestled within the Navy, but it is its own armed service. Within the Air Force, you would have the Space Force, but they would refer to it as an armed service, as a sixth branch, and four-star general would head it and sit on the Joint Chiefs. The White House is saying it's still true to his original vision, but it is scaled back in the sense that Congress has made very clear that they do not want to be spending too much money on this because they think it would be duplicative. Like they don't want to build a giant new headquarters. They don't want to do anything that's already competing with what else the Air Force does in space. But they want to get like 
everything complementary under one roof and working together. They don't want to expand the bureaucracy too much. Currently, the way things are set up, the Air Force does do the majority of uh, whatever the space operations, things that the Space Force would be working on. The majority of it is being done by the Air Force right now. Air Force launches through contractors, launches spy satellites, operate classified programs in space. It already has a space command. It's pretty small, but it's existing. It monitors our assets in space. There's a branch of the intelligence community, the National Reconnaissance Office, which does deal with spy satellites. And the intelligence community is going to study what to do with that, whether to fold that in or not. Most likely, there'll be too much pressure to keep it out of the agency because it has more clout that way within the intelligence community if it's its own entity. But these are sort of bureaucratic things. The big picture is that what was a t-shirt at Trump rallies and a slogan, you know, Space Force exclamation point (laughs) is now going to be like an actual thing. Yeah. And what many people took as a joke is going to be a real thing and something that nobody in Washington is laughing about in the sense that the threat from abroad and the things that the administration is looking to do and catch up with is very real. There are real threats that are happening in low orbit space, that things that have to do with satellite. China and Russia are big parts of this. They're developing anti-satellite weaponry, things that that can possibly take out our satellites and then leave us in the lurch with a lot of different things, Uh, you know, uh, targeting systems that the military uses. It could take down like ATMs and uh, our internet, different things. These are the real threats that the Space Force would be working on. These are real things. I mean, I think people don't really understand exactly the role that space plays in their daily life. The NASA administrator likes to point this out in interviews where he'll point out that the cell phone that you're, you know, recording the interview on is relying on GPS satellites to map your location and at certain times, you know, route call and all sorts of things. Our military depends not just on our GPS satellite network, um, which other countries are, are working to emulate, but on satellites for targeting weapons and tracking submarines and all sorts of things. We've talked to you many times about things going on in space, whether they be asteroids or landing on Mars. The next few years are just going to be really busy for space, uh, both publicly and privately. Uh, You know, in the private sector, we have all these billionaires with all their rockets shooting up into space. Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, all sorts of people. And on the public side of things, you know, China just landed their spacecraft on the far side of the moon. Israel is planning on landing on the moon as well. Space is is ever-expanding, gigantic private industry. I think there's various financial firms are saying hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of the size of the space sector right now and what it might be in the near future. If you talk to people about what they're already doing with these private constellations of satellites, it's really quite amazing. And I think people need to be comfortable and aware of that fact that, uh, you know, we're going to uh, it seems like we're we're going to do everything we can to get back to the moon and maybe use the moon as a base for launching deep space mission, deeper space missions. But, you know, it really may be that the first country that gets back to the moon, uh, that, that the first country that gets to Mars is a private U.S. company like SpaceX or is a different country. The future of space exploration is, is quite different than what we're used to. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.